Hi everyone and welcome back to another episode of Haunted History Chronicles. Joining me today is a special guest who has a real passion for sharing the local myths, legends and paranormal folklore of Shropshire. Folklore stories give a wonderful insight into life during certain periods and within certain communities. In some cases, folklore stories even predate recorded history. They are this curious blend of storytelling, inventions, customs and superstitions. The British Isles is rich with this type of history and traditions that have been passed down for generations, with each part of the United Kingdom having different stories and traditions that can be quite unique and insightful into people and events within local areas. Some can be quite quaint, others on the opposite end of the spectrum being much darker, and thus they cover every aspect of life. What is part of folklore being so fascinating is seeing how these stories adapt and change through different periods, with different storytelling contributing to the narrative. Robin Hood, for example, would be in the 15th century, a very different tale known as Robin Hood and the Monk. Robin sets out and kills a monk, and has to be rescued by a young boy from the king's dungeon. A very different tale to the story you may be familiar with. So, without further ado, let's meet today's guest, Amy. Yeah, hello. How are you? Not too tired, I hope, after your trip to Berlin. No, I'm getting there. Yesterday I spent most of the day in bed. <laughs> I don't blame you. It looked amazing though. Oh, it was amazing. I've not been I'm I'm a bit of a um well, country bumpkin really, so I've never really been out of Britain uh before. I had a disastrous trip to Benidorm when I was in my early twenties. Um so I definitely prefer Berlin to Benidorm. Uh <laughs> love to do. <laughs> well the photos looked amazing it looked like a really fascinating getaway and a, I'm sure a well-deserved break so I'm glad you had some good weather and got to see some amazing sights oh it was good yeah my partner's um, a history teacher as well so it was great to kind of get that because I don't I've got a degree in history but I did like early medieval mm. so I, I don't know much about world war Two. so it was great to kind of go and have the perspective from someone that's a bit more keyed up on it all <laughs> so do you want to start by kind of just sharing with everybody listening a little bit about yourself? I mean, you know, I know you just mentioned that you studied in history, but do you want to expand on that a little bit? Yeah. Um, so my name's Amy. I, um, I Originally, my background's in history, early medieval and medieval history. However, from probably as long as I can remember I've always had my head a little bit in the clouds my mum always used to say I was away with the fairies and that's naturally driven my curiosity and my interest in things like folklore and ghosts and anything that's a bit spooky um, and probably through my interest in history I try and merge the two kind of ideas like the the paranormal or the folklore with the history to kind of give us an insight into more like social history and things um and my main interest currently and and is Shropshire and the folklore of Shropshire history um and it's paranormal kind of history and folklore because I think it's very underrepresented when um we discuss kind of those kind of things in Britain I think Shropshire's kind of overlooked a little bit and um, being from Shropshire I've kind of grown up with a lot of the stories. It's I, I think you're right I think I think this particular type of history in itself is a little bit overlooked but 
also the region that you focus on absolutely because it's kind of tucked away a little bit isn't it between different locations yes and so yeah. yeah people tend to think of it more of somewhere you travel through as opposed to somewhere you go to yes um I completely agree with you I mean when I was at university the amount of people that when I told them I was from Shropshire they looked at me puzzled or they could tell me a service station in Shropshire but they couldn't tell me anything else about it and I think it has suffered from that kind of transitionary place because you you're either going to Wales or if you're in Wales you're going to maybe the black country Mm. or or something um but also I think it's also gained a lot because you can see the English influences and and like you know Staffordshire or that kind of folklore but then you can also see the Welsh influence and in many respects Shropshire has some quite unique things that you don't get really anywhere else and it keeps me on my toes. (laughs) And I think that's what's really beautiful about folklore in different regions and then the wider folklore of the country that you're in and then the wider folklore of the you know stories from around the world that they really can be very unique to the location itself and they offer this really interesting social perspective on life at particular periods of of you know of the t- of the day in terms of rituals and beliefs and fears and superstition superstitions and that's just this really interesting window to observe some of that and and explore some of that and then see how some of those things have remained with us today in traditions that you still see up and down the country and that can be very again very unique to regions that people don't necessarily know where that comes from but it stems from some kind of folklore within that region within that community and that's fascinating to see how some stories gain that prominence over others and what that tells us about you know certain people or events things that happened what that tells us about the history of the day itself it's it's intriguing I completely agree with you there I think it's so fascinating to be given that snapshot into a time I think anyone who has an interest in history or studies history we want to know the people and we want to know what it was like to exist at that time and I think folk belief and folklore and even ghost stories give us a wonderful idea into the world in which we're studying and it also I think shows us that we're not that much different to people that have come before us I think there's a tendency with history to kind of have this idea that it's 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 a very Victorian idea in a way that history is the the movement of progress and the people in the medieval period for instance were so much more backward than us now and I think through studying folklore you really do get to see that we're all the same we have the same hopes we have the same dreams the context to our world may be different but we are we're the same human we're human and I think folklore is a wonderful study of of what it means to be human and I think it's very relevant um particularly in the last couple of years we've had you know all sorts of things with pandemic and and I think there's been more of a, a an eye on folklore to help us understand the events that are happening in our world at the moment it, that's one of the things that really drove me um with my blog and with kind of the the earlier stages of my blog was I think it was an element of me missing home because I don't actually live in Shropshire at the moment um I live in the northwest and it was that a, a, a kind of I'm missing home and I miss things like the reeking and stuff like that but the more you dig into these folk traditions and these folk ideas the more you see how important it is uh, to 
continue with them and you know even the stories even take away I write a lot about ghost stories in Shropshire and you take away the argument for or against ghost existence these stories mattered to somebody at some point um, particularly with a lot of the recent stories I've been researching and kind of looking into have been quite tragic um, you know murders or suicides of young women these stories only exist because they these girls or these people mattered to the community they were in and I think we would do the past a disservice by not continuing them and not allowing them to be out there still so I, I think it's it's very important to kind of continue on and also to reinterpret these stories so um, a very classic folktale in Shropshire is the idea of the Reekin giant and this giant is he hates Shropshire and he's on his way to Shropshire to flood the town of Shrewsbury and he gets outwitted by the cobbler this this old man who outwits him and then he ends up throwing the stone that he's going to use to flood um to dam up the river seven and causes the the reeking to be built and now this story had a very you know it's entertainment but it probably had a meaning to the people that it belonged to in that society then however we can look at it with new eyes now um and we can we can draw so much from it you know it's it's the fact the cobbler's an old man it's 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 the place of the elderly in society or you know you can look at the fact that the giant is um a welshman and he's described in quite a negative light so we've been able to look through our modern eyes and go what does that tell you about the relationship between the welsh and the english at this time um and there's just a lot we can still learn from these folk stories i think and i think for some people they you know when they hear these stories they they don't necessarily realize that there are elements of truth there are embellishments they've changed over time and it's kind of unpicking it's teasing out some of those things to see what you do learn from them and they can be they can represent a real spectrum you can have very quaint um kind of sweet little narratives and they go all the way to the other other end of that scale with some very macabre and dark stories and, and again that's what makes them really interesting and fascinating that there is representation across that scale in terms of life you know it represents every aspect of life from positive things through to really quite dark moments in people's lives oh completely um some of the best stories in Shropshire are actually you look at the Shropshire landscape and you see these like kind of beautiful rolling hills and all of the the beautiful little villages and stuff and then you hear some of the folk stories and some of the particularly the ghost stories and there is so much tragedy and sadness within them and that's got to come from somewhere um even things like Shrewsbury Castle's supposed to be haunted by a, chap, a lovely chap known as Bloody Jack. Now, Bloody Jack was a um, supposedly a soldier at the, the a, a foreigner, a soldier at the castle from not from Shropshire, and he is actually Shropshire's first serial killer, supposedly according to the folklore, and he murdered several. I think it was eight girls in total, and mutilated them you know basically really poorly treated these girls and when he was outwitted they found eight fingers and eight sets of toes all laid out in a little box now that's the sort of behavior that modern serial killers have you know taking trophies and things and there's no historical proof that this actually happened however there are mirrors in his behavior 
to modern serial killers so it's it's like is there a kernel of truth in these stories um but even if there isn't it's kind of you know if you've got a castle in a small area and you're getting all these influx of young dashing men who make promises to all the young local women it's a way of keeping and controlling the girls and making sure they don't go running off with a soldier um so there's a lot we can look into in these stories and kind of to understand and, and even um one of my favorite ghost stories in Shropshire is actually about two monks from Wenlock Abbey and as they were walking around they used to be the tax collectors and they didn't really like each other and they they once they left the monastery they probably indulged a bit too much in vices of um everything that the bible says you shouldn't do they indulged a bit too much of it including drinking and then they'd, they'd fight each other and one time they actually was having a fight and they fell down a flight of stairs and they hit the heads and their ghost is said to be haunting in, in it's from east hope um not too far from much wenlock and their ghost haunts the churchyard of much wenlock still having this fight and i love it because it's comical and it's like you don't when you think of monks you don't think of monks having a punch up and they're actually described as big burly monks having a punch up but it also gives us an insight into kind of the attitudes to the church at the time um and i just it's just great i think <laughs> it's you're right it's it's entertaining isn't it and yet it really is insightful you you can glean all kinds of things about them and i love that kind of element of detective work sometimes that you have which is teasing it out to find the bits that link with a particular historical event or something that you know making those connections and seeing how and where these stories come from how they origin originate and it's not always easy you know because it gets lost over time and i can think of one one example in oxford which i find quite comical and it's linked to christchurch and if you go into Christchurch, the building, to the towards the Great Hall, there's graffitied in the wall two two words, and it says "No Peel." And the story that surrounds the college that has existed for centuries is that it harkens back to the period of the Black Death, when students were basically forced to eat a diet of potato peel by the college doctors, who thought that this would ward off. The black death and so they had to eat potato peel for breakfast for lunch for dinner very grim yeah so you can imagine they protested and by protesting they wrote no peel in graffiti carved into the into the great hall doors now that obviously has some elements of truth you know they may have had special diets at the college during the black death it certainly tells us something about fears around being sick and being ill and how widespread disease was and you know and all of that that it entailed but it actually has no truth in terms of why no peel was written on the on the wall and yeah. the 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 words themselves were put there um and and based around one particular man which was sir robert peel yeah he happened to study at the college and his nickname was orange peel so you can see now why my sense of humour comes into it because yeah. he was known he was known as Orange Peel because he had bright red hair, but he was also a known supporter of Protestantism. So he was very much against um, Reformation 
and the the color of support for protestantism was orange so he was he was given that nickname for two reasons now peel became the prime minister and his position around protestantism and and catholics and what should happen changed and it, it meant that he resigned from his position and when that happened there was this real political uproar within the city of oxford which was a known catholic city and so what you had were groups forming who were pro peel and who were anti peel based on what he'd done and during one of these protests they were chanting no peel no peel and graffitied it on the college entrance and that is what those words actually stem from and it's oh, this cool. reminder today of this unrest between the city itself and the college because of this one man but it's it, it's become kind of seeped in this other story that obviously links to something else to do with the college and i think that's magical wonderful oh completely that's really cool and also funny <laughs> yeah yeah I, you've got to say it's it's quite funny i think i think that's what's really interesting about um vote beliefs and and like things that are tangible like graffiti or you know um sto standing stones even they they kind of but have their stories a lot of the time is that there's a real reason why they are there but folklore will tell you something else and I think that's great. So you mentioned, you know, your blog. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the blog and where it started? Yeah. Um, so my blog's called Nearly Knowledgeable um, at, at blogspot.com. Nearly Knowledgeable History at blogspot.com. And it was a lockdown baby. Um, I think I was looking for things. I worked in quite a challenging environment. I worked with uh, youth homelessness. And during lockdown, a lot of the issues and a lot of the problems that were already there for the young people I looked after had kind of got worse. They 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 had really found it quite a challenging time. So I was putting my all in and I was making sure that I, you know, doing it overtime and things. And we all had the stress of the lockdown. And I think I just needed something to kind of give me that release, to give me um, something to do that wasn't work. Um, so what I did was I, I wanted first to write a history blog. I thought, write a history blog and maybe do something about dark history and that kind of thing. But then I noticed that the topics that I was looking at writing about were Shropshire-based. They were about my home. Uh, so the first thing I wrote about was sin eaters and the practice of sin eating. And also Shropshire, Shropshire's last sin eater, Richard Munslow. And then I thought maybe that's just, you know, it's quite a cool concept. It's a cool story. I've written about that. Then it was the reeking. And then and I noticed there was a pattern in, in me writing about Shropshire. And so then it quickly, very quickly went from being just a, a bog standard history blog to being more about um, Shropshire history, Shropshire, lo like kind of social history, folklore and also the paranormal. Your um, first piece was the, you know, I've been hooked from the very first piece that you wrote. This, the piece about Sin Eaters was fascinating. Oh, thank you. And, um, yeah, I mean, it just, I knew about it. It was something that I've seen, I've read about. But the fact that you were able to add the very real elements for Shropshire itself made it feel much more personal and much more real 
in a way Thank so you. that you could really connect with those events and it was a fascinating a fascinating insight really into grief and how grief could be handled so yeah very well done thank I you people go and read it if they haven't already oh thank you i do think um when you go because i i revisited uh rattling hope or ratch up if you want to use the the local term fairly recently uh to see richard munslow's grave and when you're stood there and you're looking at the grave it makes his grief very tangible because he's he's buried with his children and it's a very isolated small community it's a very small area and you can understand how in somewhere like that the grief of losing your three children would swallow you and you'd need an outlet for it especially you know he's a man who would have been subject to you know that Victorian stiff upper lip and things and I think him resurrecting the because there is a debate about the sin eaters and how much it was practiced and I I certainly believe it was probably practiced and that it happened um obviously you've got the element of the fact that it was it was pretty much outlawed and it was seen as by both churches as being a bit naughty um so it might probably wasn't spoken about as much as it should have been um and I think you know just with him being able to resurrect the practice he must have known about the practice he wasn't a he was a, a wealthy-ish middling classes farmer but he wasn't a academic or a scholar so it must have been known about in order for him to resurrect it and I think he, it also with him being able to do something like sin eating it changes the course of history of sin eating but and it also makes the suffering of the people that did it before him much more tangible because you know they were often the most um vulnerable members of society they weren't people that had people to look out for them they weren't people to have you know any it, it was it was often the most vulnerable in society that would become sin eaters and unfortunately there was no sin eater for the sin eater so they had that marginalized place in society but then also they knew that they were helping others get to heaven but they weren't able to get there themselves and I think it's just it's always fascinated me and I think the more I've looked into it and particularly in kind of the Shropshire context it's become even more fascinating and again, you kind of said something there that I think really resonates, and that is when you know the story and then you can connect it with something tangible and real like a gravestone marker or something else within your community, it really does help to connect with that past. And I think, you know, we all have a duty to kind of remember those things and take note of those things. And this can be a really powerful medium to allow us to do that and to understand the things that we see around us all the all the time that we might walk past and not notice it just sheds that spotlight and allows those stories of individuals and stories of places and events and things that have happened that have become part of this underbelly of history kind of allows it to rise to the fore and i think i think that's beautiful it's really powerful i completely agree with you again i think the biggest motivation for what I try and do and try and put forward is bringing back the person. Mm. So when I'm writing about ghosts, everyone thinks ghosts are cool. You know, you've got and an hauntings are cool, but I want to bring back the person and I want to look at why that person was remembered. But similarly, um, when I write about 
like the historical side of it I, I tend to look at graveyards as, as my inspiration I grew up in a place um near Ironbridge it's called Maidley and my local church has some phenomenal graves it has you know it's it's quite an old graveyard from this I think it's 1795 the church was rebuilt there so it's it's got some old graveyards uh graves sorry and then as a child I we used to wander through and you know it was it was a great way to cut to the local supermarket as well um but I always remembered there being this one there was a memorial with several graves and there was a gravestone and I've I've talked about it a fair bit on my blog and it's a mosaic and it's this beautiful mosaic gravestone with a cross on it and kind of ornate words and wording around it and it always kind of stayed with me and I always kind of paid attention to it but I never really knew the story of it so when I actually started looking into the story and found out that it was quite a tragic one and that it was basically a young boy he was eight years old um Charles Arthur Turner his name is and he was playing with his brother and some of his friends um the local um like heaps of because where I grew up in Shropshire it's very industrialized it's it's this lovely kind of mixture of really quite rural and quite it's the mantle of kind of the industrial revolution as well so they were playing on these industrial kind of waste areas and he slipped and fell into a kind of a hot water it was where the hot water from the machines would go to kind of be reused and put in there um but before what before he actually slipped his brother slipped and he by pulling his younger brother out he ended up slipping in and getting really quite bad burns um and unfortunately he he died of his injuries so you have this this horrible story about this 8 year old boy who was harmed by the environment around him and his parents like so many people at that point in history in the Victorian times couldn't afford a gravestone so rather than this being a sad story about a boy lost to history his mum spoke to her employer the Jackfield Tile Works and she said to them you know can I take the scraps so what his mother would do is she'd do kind of eight 10 12 hour shifts at the tile works and then she'd go home collect the scraps of the tiles and go home and, and build him a gravestone and the gravestone is still actually in Maidley churchyard today and it's it's really it's gone from being a sad story and it is still a sad story to being a kind of reminder of of the power of a mother's love and also the power of kind of striving through adversity and and every time I'm back now I go and visit uh, little Charles because it's just I don't want that story to be forgotten and I think I found with a lot of what I've written about I get quite <laughs> emotionally attached to the people and I don't want them to be forgotten I want people to know about them and again it's because you're connecting with them They're, they become real and that story becomes a meal becomes real so of course there's that emotional attachment to it and I think when again when people read your words and and read some of those stories and and hopefully find out some from within their own areas you know you can connect to them too and they don't get lost they they can stay with us and and that's really I think what we all strive to hope to do is have those stories remain so that they can still be heard in a hundred years time and and still viewed in the same way as something beautiful that shouldn't be lost and forgotten to time. 
Yeah, completely. And I think it it also even that story gives us a lot of insight into the kind of world that would have been in that area at that time. So you get quite I'm not very good at Victorian history. I was quite bad at I was quite um small minded when I was at school and when I was at university and I only really wanted to do medieval and the Vikings and the Dark Ages. So I didn't really, even though I grew up in near Iron Bridge and the the advent of industry and all that, I never really knew much about it. So I I remember going on a school trip when I was about year nine and we wandered around in the blistering heat looking at all these bridges that that Abram Darby or Thomas Telford built and it was just not for me. So I didn't really have any preconceived ideas really. So when I am writing about kind of that Victorian and Edwardian period these stories are giving me a real insight into the past and how my grandparents and my great-grandparents would have lived um because my my grandfather was quite an old grandfather um he was I think he'd be nearly 100 now if he was still alive so he was a product of the same world that if that little boy hadn't have died he'd have been almost my grandfather's contemporary Mm. and I think it's really interesting to learn more about where you're from through folklore through ghosts and 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 just local history absolutely and do you have any particular favorites from the blog or from your own research that you want to share with people oh that's tough um i think it's like choosing a favorite kind of child if you're a parent yeah i I think i'd probably (laughs) yeah i think i'd probably find it easier to um choose a favorite child if i had them Um, (laughs) i think i'm very fond of my i call them my women um so there's even though one was a child there's three i've been i've written about them for haunted magazine um and there's three women in shropshire and, and they for various reasons they all had quite tragic backstories and they ended up becoming ghosts and the one I'm most probably uh, well there's there's Polly Myers and there's Mary Way and then there's um my absolute idol at the moment Nanny Morgan so Nanny Morgan was a she grew up not far from um and they said Wolverhampton then she it's not Wolverhampton at all um <laughs> she grew up not far from much Wenlock and she nothing really you know, um, exciting about her for the first maybe 10, 15 years of her life. She went into service uh, in a local house, becoming a servant, but she got caught up in a scheme from stealing from the house householder. So Nanny ends up going to prison. Now, it's not really said how how long she goes for, but by the time she comes out of prison, nobody in the area wants anything to do with her. She's a criminal. She's a young unmarried woman. A family kick her out, um, and she's basically destitute. So, her being her, rather than you know, be sad or or, or take to the street, she decides to meet and hang around with a bunch of local travellers. Um, the travelling there's quite a big traveling community at the time in Shropshire because they'd come and work in the fields and like itinerant laborers and stuff farm laborers and she gets quite pally with them and suddenly they give her a level of freedom that she could never have had if she'd have stayed in the confines of kind of Victorian society so she basically they they embrace her with open arms and and it probably would be so freeing 
in the Victorian time to not only have that level of freedom that's not like what you grew up with but also to be able to kind of build yourself back up after that period of prison and and being kicked out by your family so she runs off and she's she's taught how to read cards and fortunes and everything that's kind of you know make charms and potions and she's actually really 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 good at it um she disappears off the records for years I can't find her anywhere but then one day she unexpectedly returns back to much Wenlock because her father's passed and she's claiming his house (laughs) so she sets up shop in much Wenlock and not too far from much Wenlock and she sells charms and potions and she's meant to actually be the best charmer in that part of Shropshire for a very long time and you get everybody from servants to ladies of the house going to her And you get this real dichotomy, I think, that you probably find quite a lot with witchcraft is that the people want her and the people want her services and they they need her in in many ways that she's a commodity. They need her the love potions and they need their fortunes telling and they want charms to make sure that their cattle aren't sick. But when she's around polite company, they ostracise her and they diminish her from any really, really ostracise her from community um so she 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 gets to the stage where she decides she's going to kind of play up to the witch idea so you know she's got loads of cats and she has a frog um and several frogs and toads and her favorite one's called dew as in like um i can't say (laughs) dew as in like the grass dew and she feeds him off supposedly communion bread and wine and she covers him in kisses when she's in polite company um and she just generally lives her best life as quite a free and liberated woman um especially for the time uh and makes an awful lot of money in the process she would have virtually been a millionaire by today's standards however she gets well she has a downfall through her partner now she's dating by modern standards of a younger chap she's in her 60s by this point um but she's with a younger chap who's in his 30s and one day they're having an argument because he's gone into town and spent the money for food on drink and they're having an argument and he tries to leave her and she's shouting at him and then he ends up murdering her he stabs her to death which is awful um but the backlash from the local community they would rather believe that this chap who you know it was in a relationship with nanny morgan uh and morgan that he was bewitched by her than he could ever love an older woman and there's a real backlash in the local community after her death about her being a witch and even the local newspapers and newspapers as far as like hull and um you know manchester reporting her murder as the murder of a witch and this is in 1853 she was murdered so it's it's quite late on in supposedly the sophisticated victorians they're they're saying that it almost was a blessing that this old woman was murdered because of her being a witch and it even after her death he he ended up being transported to um um, australia and the folklore, because this is, Melanie Morgan is a real woman, she actually existed. However, her story and folklore entwine, so you get kind of a composite story between uh, what actually happened and, and some of the folklore. So the folklore says that Nanny Morgan um, sunk his ship 
through her, her, her magic powers, she sunk his ship and he ended up drowning before he got to Australia. Um, but even after her death, she wasn't given a proper burial. She was chucked, essentially chucked in a grave um, with no last rites or anything like that. And they, they dragged all of her belongings into the centre of uh, Much Wenlock and burnt them because the local community was that scared of losing a witch and gaining a ghost that they burnt all of her things. And, you know, the folklore kicks in then and the folklore says that, you know, she stands in the centre of town still as a ghost and tries to attra attract young men to the area. And if young men gaze upon her they'll love her forever and they'll be they'll they'll be with her after death but I think this story is it it's on in a lot of ways it it's very sad and I think history has done Nanny Morgan or Anne Morgan as her her name a real disservice um because you know she was a woman who was incredibly intelligent she was a businesswoman she was astute she had a sense of humour to play up to that witch stereotype. And I think all society had really done up until that point was kind of go, oh, well, she was a witch and she was murdered. And I think it's quite shocking to think that in the middle of the 1800s, although she wasn't persecuted and, and killed as a witch, she was killed in a domestic argument that it was framed that her murder was kind of okay in a way because of her purported witchcraft. Um so that's certainly one I think I I like to share and I like to kind of get her name out there now and 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 just she was just a remarkable woman and, and she probably had her own flaws because she wasn't perfect. It's powerful and you see it echoed in so many other similar tales. Oh completely yeah um one thing I found when I've been particularly looking at female ghosts in Shropshire is that these women are for a start so relatable um but also they've been framed in the negative lights. And Nanny Morgan is framed as this evil, she, the wicked witch and much Wenlock, and she's this evil seductress and, mm. you know, say, dancing with the devil and all that kind of tripe. Um, but you forget that she's a woman. And at the time of her murder, she was, regardless of how kind of sturdy she might have been and, you know, I know 60s, no age now, but she was in her middle to late 60s. Um, she had quite a hard life but she in the flip side of that was incredibly resourceful she for many women at that time if they'd have been ostracized from their families or their local community that would have meant the workhouse yeah. and I think it also is a testament to the traveling community as well that they were willing to take her in they took her in and they gave her the freedom um, that she deserved and they were they didn't see her as Anne Morgan the criminal they saw her as Anne Morgan the person yeah. and from all reports that I found she did fit in really quite well with the community and she she loved her time there uh, and they also gave her the tools to be a woman resourceful in herself because if she, she I know it was kind of magic and, and and reading cards and fortunes but she in all essence was a businesswoman she made an awful lot of money and she was able to defy any conventions at the time and support herself and I just think she was a remarkable woman and, and it's a, it's a shame that there's not more written about her other than the folklore um and her death was just tragic and I, I find it very hard knowing that she's buried somewhere and she's not given the respect of the burial she deserved as a victim of murder mm. and I think um 
one of the other girls I wrote about called Mary Way, her story is actually lost to history. Um, we don't know concretely whether she existed. However, I'm fairly certain that someone like her, if, if she didn't exist, someone like her would have existed. But through the modern lens as well, it's an incredibly relevant story to today. So Mary was walking home one day after a shift at work and she walked, she'd grown up in the area. She knew the area well and it was quite light out at night and it wasn't a very far walk. Um, but two men attacked her and they, they violated her and they actually murdered her and really quite horrible things that the folk tale suggests is that she had her head cut off and they left her body but they never found her head and as a ghost she's meant to haunt the local area looking for her head um and even if mary way as a person didn't exist something will have triggered that ghost story something would have triggered that to happen but i think when i first read her story it, it really hit me and it was i couldn't quite understand why because I, I, I'm an ex-goth and I read about, you know, <laughs> I write about ghosts and I read about true crime and murders all the time. But I think with Mary Way, I think it was because she was she's come to represent the one that didn't get away. I think we all as women have experiences that were close calls or, or, or things that made us feel uncomfortable. And, you know, even just with light of some of the situations that have happened recently, I was researching Mary at the same time the Sarah Everard case um, was in the news and was unfolding and I think what was so tangible about Mary Way's story is that it's really has linked the past to now she's all of our fears as a woman you know when we go out we want to be safe and we want to feel safe and stories like Mary's and Sarah Everard's through through the ages they combine to make us give give us that idea that we're not safe and I think at the time I I was looking at the news and then I was researching this folk tale and I was I was having really an epiphany about the safety of women and, and women's place in history and in society so I think there's a lot of really tangible pieces that even in ghost stories we tend to think of ghost stories is just something to spook us on a on a, on a winter's night but they can really be powerful commentaries on not just the past and women in the past but also our place in in you know now as 21st century women i applaud absolutely everything you just said because i think you are so right you know yes they are pieces that we can learn from but they really do echo and resonate with so many things in today's modern world and again it allows us that connection to the past but also very much a connection with maybe what's going on within communities and within our you know our local area and our wider area and it's a talking point it's it's a way in it's it's something that helps us still to understand what's still happening today and in parts of the world and you know those are often things that people don't necessarily like to talk about or are uncomfortable talking about or don't like to put a spotlight on. And I think often folklore can be that way into seeing that connection and, and making you think and making you question something and asking sometimes a difficult question, you know, is this something that still happens today? You know, is this something that I think about? Do I experience something similar? 
and that again is just so important I think yeah I completely completely agree with you there I think you have the folk folk stories that are kind of you can tell her for entertainment, like the Reekin Giants, a great example of it. Um, but I found particularly within Shropshire's ghost stories, and it's probably the case with ghost stories from all over, really, is that there's there's definitely a message, a purveying message behind them. And one thing I find really intriguing as well is why. Now, I'm I'm not as interested. I think everyone's interested in the existence of ghosts and whether or not they exist and things, but I'm more interested in why that story is remembered as a ghost. Because yeah. like I, I've written recently about a, a poor chap who um down in Colbertdale near Iron Bridge who was working did a job in a foundry and he was paid in alcohol and suddenly out of nowhere he attacks one of his friends, he's biting his nose and you know, just generally being a bit bizarre. And then before his friends could properly restrain him and find out why he, you know, he's drunk, but why he's behaving like this, he throws himself in front of one of the machines and ends up really, really gruesome way of dying, but he ends up crushing his skull in. Um, now that's not a ghost story. That's, that was, I found that actually whilst I was researching another piece and it was just in a newspaper and it's it was kind of put forward as why you shouldn't drink and the temperance movement had really clung on to this story it was actually being reported in australia of all places as uh, the demons of beer don't drink but that tragic death and and that tragic suicide is not seen as a ghost story but then something like mary way who it's equally as graphic and equally as gruesome, but in a different way, becomes a ghost story. And I think that's not something we'll ever really be able to answer. But it's a powerful thing to discuss the why behind the ghost. Yeah, it's a really intriguing question. I had a really similar discussion with Amy Bennett from Full Dark Paranormal, who wrote an amazing piece in The Feminine Macabre, where she was looking at how so many ghost stories become you know, a woman in white, a, a man in black, yeah, a woman in red, a woman in green, all of these that we literally see littered everywhere. And how the story behind it, the real person can sometimes get lost and the real events around that person can get lost. And I can see a real connection with folklore here and, and how the real events of that person, you're right, it's it's interesting how some stories become the ghost story and others just become historical. This is an event that happened in the past, but how some of these stories make it into this tradition and it becomes passed down. And for me, I wonder if some of it is about desensitising people from the horror of what actually happened or the real kind of terror and grief and putting it into something that I don't want to say watered down but something that feels more like make-believe less real less about the person and it allows a community to kind of tell it from a slight distance for a while do you know what I mean yeah yeah I, I think there's there's definitely an element of that and I'd, I'd agree with you and I think particularly with women mm -hmm. I think it's very interesting that there's two archetypes really in female ghost stories in Shropshire and particularly in general you either have kind of the lady in white for instance who tends to be quite a young innocent kind of 
um spectre we have like the we have the white lady of Longnor in Shropshire and she ended up drowning in a, a lake and she's still seen in uh, a river and she's still seen on the bridge near she drowned um but then you also have the vengeful woman spirit who tends to be a bit older like we have Madame Piggott in yep. Shropshire who died during childbirth and she had a horrible kind of horrible partner who basically said um there was there was the choice of whether she survived or the baby survived and he said basically let her die so the, but in the end both of them died in the story and she's very vengeful spirit um and I think it's very interesting why there are these two archetypes and also I think when it comes to young women that have died the and young girls that maybe have lost their lives through tragedy or cruelty or even by their own hand it's because it doesn't follow the narrative of what a woman should do. Yeah. So, you know, a woman is young, a woman has a little bit of an education, she helps out her mum and learns all the feminine trades and then she marries, has children and repeats the process. So if she gets her life stolen from her before that process can happen, I feel like there's almost that absence, that space where she should be, but she isn't. So then, you know, maybe everybody that's, every noise or or thing that's misplaced in the house or the trees banging against the the window is her and it's it's kind of like the idea that grief you can't that person can't truly be gone because they were too young to be gone so that allows the space for the ghost to exist and it by with regard to like the angry female spirit it's kind of like you either die as this kind of virginal white lady or you live long enough to become the angry woman and it's kind of about society's influence on womanhood and you know a lot of women at the time a lot of these ghost stories were have, were written had gone through tragedy after tragedy and I think it's it's just interesting all around to kind of wonder why certain things become ghosts and other things don't completely and it's there's so much you can just unpick about it. And and again, I think that's what makes looking at folklore so fascinating and seeing the differences between regions and, you know, how a similar story can can be present in so many different communities with these sl slight subtle changes, but yet have the same kind of messages and reveal the same type of things about what was going on. And yeah I you know I just really encourage anybody to go out and explore their local community because you're going to find something from where you live and you know the wider community around where you live and it's really intriguing I mean I wish I wish there was more coming from an educational background I wish there was more kind of taught about this in schools because it's fascinating it really is fascinating and as someone who who really enjoyed history and studied literature at university storytelling and how storytelling changes is 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 fascinating and why we don't look at that within schools I don't know <laughs> I really don't. Yeah. I completely agree with you um I completely agree with you I think looking at your your area stories but also the wider stories can teach you so much um mm -hmm. one thing I found myself through because I've, I've written my blog for nearly two years now when we visit somewhere else I look for a ghost story or I look for kind of a 
a folk story or, or even if it's like I, I really like goblins so I look for places that have stories of goblins to try and see what that tells me about the society because I think you can learn just as much through folklore as you can um you know history and things and I think it's certainly I'm starting my journey to become a teacher very soon and I think one of the things I want to do when I am teaching is incorporate folklore as much as the curriculum allows because it's an indisp- it's an indispensable tool there's so much hidden in books and archives and 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 you know the minds of our older generation that can really influence our life in the positive um even down to like I recently was researching wedding folklore because I'm not I'm engaged very recently engaged but I'm not very into the you know the big church wedding with lots of flowers and and big puffy dress or anything and I thought at first oh it'll be a bit of a laugh to kind of look at Shropshire wedding folklore and having done so I was really quite surprised how much of it I would actually want in my own wedding and how much of it was actually really lovely um so you know in a way that's that's in that's enhanced my life because now I know kind of the direction I'd want to go down in my wedding (laughs) so it's there's so much you can learn from from the past and from folklore and I, I implore anyone to to just go outside and uh, in their local area and have a little look and explore just explore yeah yeah because um, it is an exploration it is and you know everybody knows some of these stories I mean everybody loves myths and legends from school and knows stories like um Robin Hood and Sherwood Forest you know actually start somewhere like that if you want to start with something that you're familiar with and kind of track how that story's changed and where it started from in the 15th century because the original story of Robin Hood is completely different yeah. to the Robin Hood that we have today. He was he was off an adventure killing a monk, wasn't he? And then yeah. ended up being imprisoned and had to be rescued by a young boy. Nowhere in there is you know his band of merry men. It's a completely different tale. So you can see how it changes and evolves and you know, you touched on something really powerful with what you you said a moment ago, which is you can look for things within your own community and then go out and look for similar stories elsewhere. And you you will see some of these threads up and down the country. I mean, there's so many rich stories across the British Isles and beyond. And, you know, seeing those connections is really, really interesting. And again can show those connections with events in the past and and i'm not talking about the far past either sometimes the recent past you know you can see how locals connect to stories and events that have happened in recent decades i mean i can think off the top of my head here in oxfordshire there's a an area near churwell which is kind of near a mill it's fringford mill and they have something called the corpse lights I don't know if you've got something similar in Shropshire. Yeah, yeah, we might do. Yeah, they're known as so many different things. They're known as, you know, Will of the Wisps. Jack yeah, Lance. we've got a great story about Will of Wisps and how they. It was more the origin story of of Will the blacksmith and how he started the Will of Wisps. But they are common across so many different regions. This this phenomena of this flickering light that you see that often, you know, signals something dangerous happening or leading someone or lurking you know luring someone rather into misfortune or death and in this particular area of Fringford by this mill it's a really common phenomena you know you see it around graveyards you see it around marshlands around you know boggy land 
And there's lots of different scientific explanations for it, but in this one particular community, it's it's been linked to, you know, the pandemic of 1918 with the you know the influenza pandemic. Yeah, Spring, Springford was really hit hard by um, the flu, and so they they suffered huge amounts of deaths in that community. And at the time, there was this uptake in this paranormal activity of this this phenomena of corpse lights, and so the two were connected together. And so stories of the corpse lights and this pandemic have combined. You've also got recent events where in the 1970s, there was this accident where two young girls sadly walked out onto a busy road and were killed. And the locals, again, attribute those corpse lights to why these poor young girls sadly lost their lives. They'd been lured out from the grass verge and met their death. So you can see how even in recent decades, how this story that dates back centuries is still being used to explain and link to things in the recent history as a way of coping with grief and explaining what's happened in the area. And again, that's just really interesting. It really is. Um, we've, we have got a Will-O-Wisp story in Shropshire, but it's, a, it's more about the origins of it. But there's a similar, not a recent um, tragedy or disaster or pandemic or anything, but when um, the plague, the second time round, the plague hit Shropshire terribly, I think um, there's not any concrete of how many people lost their lives, but around a third of the population was just gone. And that would have been because the first time round it wasn't too bad. It was it was still bad because it was a plague, but we didn't lose as many people. And suddenly there was reports of um, in the years after of this barge going down the River Severn and from the Iron Bridge going all the way down and then disappearing. And it's it's been seen in the modern day. Uh, my grandfather actually when he first moved to uh, he was a Welshman and when he first moved to the Iron Bridge it scared him out of his wits because he saw it and it's meant to have um, a bargeman at the helm who is sailing like guiding the boat down the River Severn and it's cargo or corpses row by row piled up quite high and the best vantage point to see it is actually stood on the Iron Bridge and you watch it go under the Iron Bridge and pass and then it disappears however there's reports of it turning up just up the river in Jackfield which is about two miles um, down river from um, Iron Bridge but the barge rather than sailing is moored on the near the riverbed and the bargeman is seen stood on the riverbed and the actual the corpses are seen row by row on the riverbed as well and that itself is just a really cool spooky story and you know when I first started telling it I used to still get goosebumps talking about it but when you actually look at the history and how many people died in the plague of the 1600s then you find I found out that there was actually plague pits in Jackfield so the main route for the bodies in of of my part of East Shropshire would have been down the River Severn and taking them to Jackfield. It bodes the question of whether or not this entity or this spirit that's seen is an actual spirit or whether it's an example of collective memory that has been passed on verbally through generations. And it's, you know, because how 
horrible would it have been at the time to watch that ship go past your house knowing that there was people you knew on that and knowing that in all likelihood you might end up that way and it's the sort of grief that I don't think a community gets over very quickly and that's why I believe that stories like the ghost barge of Ironbridge have have developed and they've become part of the popular kind of imagination of the time and you know I don't know whether my grandfather actually saw the ghost barge or whether he saw something and he'd heard that story and interpreted it as that however I think it's a very powerful story and it also gives us a real insight into the the world of the plague and the world and and how we get over pandemics such as that um and also gives us kind of an insight and an understanding of our own feelings in this current pandemic. I got chills listening to that. Genuinely, oh, the hairs on the back of my neck stood up. I mean, because it it just really resonates, doesn't it? In terms of when you make those connections with a, a real event, with is this the beginnings of this story? Is this what people would have seen? And when you realise, you know, that is likely something people really did see, and it's it's over time become this this ghost story i mean yeah just chills body chills everywhere i mean it's just fascinating to unpick and get to those moments and then ask those wider questions and then go from there i mean it's just it's never ending and it's so fascinating it really is isn't it it's just you you open that can of worms and then you, you it's one of those mm -hmm. you, you never want to get out of it <laughs> no definitely not <laughs> Thank you. Honestly, Amy, I could literally spend the next 10 years, I think, listening to you and, oh, thank you. Stories and talking with you because it's so fascinating. I will make sure that um, we signpost people to your blog and anything else you want us to put in the website so that when the episode goes out, they can come and find you. Because if they haven't already read you in Haunted Magazine or found your blog, then they really need to. Thank you. That's really um, sweet of you. <laughs> you need to keep writing and you, you need to keep doing what you're doing because it is phenomenal. And I do love that you focus on Shropshire and you really talk about where you grew up and really showcase it because that's magical. So keep doing what you're doing, keep writing. And I'm sure in years to come, I'm going to pick a book of yours off of oh, really somewhere. So. Thank you. <laughs> Honestly, it's been fantastic. So thank you so much for your time. It's been brilliant. Thank you and thanks for having me. No worries. Bye everyone. Bye. If you like this podcast, there's a number of things you can do. Come and join us on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter. Spread the word about us with friends and family. Leave a review on our website or other podcast platforms. To support the podcast further, why not head on over to join us on Patreon, where you can sign up to gain a library of additional material and recordings, and in the process know you're helping the podcast continue to put out more content. On a final note, if you haven't read it already, then you can find my piece In Search of the Medieval in Volume 3 of The Feminine Macabre over on spookeats.com or via Amazon. Links to the book will also be in the episode description. Thank you everyone for your amazing support. Mm -hmm.